do you enjoy data futurology and the unique take that we have on leadership in data science? If so, please consider sponsoring us. We're currently looking for individuals and organizations to help us continue to create this content for the community. If you're an individual, please head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash datafuturology and you'll get some special perks, special access through that page. If you're an organization and you would like to get involved and help Data Futurology, please get in touch with me either through LinkedIn, through the website or via email. We'd love to hear from you so we can continue this mission of helping people become better leaders in the data science space. Thanks for your support. He said, it's logical, it's all there, work it out. Yeah. But it was the best piece of work advice ever because it's true. It's logical, work it out, right? Yeah. So that side kind of places you well to be able to work in the technology field and everything because everything we do is driven by some level of logic. You know, and if it's logical, it can be done. That's the other mm -hmm. attitude I take, right? You just need to think through the problem and the logic, and then you can get to an answer. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast focused on helping you become a better leader in data science. My name is Felipe Flores. I'm a senior executive in data science. I've been working in this space for 20 years, and these are conversations that I have with people that I are my peers and people that I look up to, hoping to give you the most value and benefit that I can bring you. Today, we are speaking with Steve Monahan. He's the Chief Digital Officer at Riot Bank and has a series of investments in banking and insurance using AI and new technologies in order to improve efficiencies across the board. The way that he looks at what you can do with technology, the results that he's had, and the way that he's been leveraging AI is super impressive. I think you'll get a lot from this episode. I definitely enjoyed it. So here's a conversation with Steve Monaghan. Let me know what you think. If you want to get more value from your data analytics investment, I highly recommend you speak with Rubix. That's Rubix with an X at the end. I've done a lot of work with them. They're excellent at what they do, and they're a lot of fun to work with as well. Rubix are a fully Australian-owned data analytics technology services company. They work with top ASX listed companies. They are dedicated to being Australia's leading data company. That's all they do. They love doing it. The experts at Rubix apply their extensive data capability and rapid analytics framework to help you get the value you need from your data within a couple of weeks. After that, the sky's the limit. I've been impressed at how fast they are at delivery. Unlike other consulting companies, Rubix is a true partner. They are data specialists, they always send in their A-team, or as they like to call it, the Data Avengers. For data strategy, all the way through to delivery, give them a call, ask for Dylan. You'll have a fantastic conversation. You'll walk away smarter and have had a few laughs as well. And also check out the website, rubix.com.au. And for the contact form, go to rubix.com.au forward slash contact. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? No worries. Well, my day is half over. It's 7.30 a.m. So <laughs> already up and running. This is my third conference call this morning, so good to go. Man, it is crazy the, the, the days that you have. I love, I love the, the work ethic, the drive. I'm so keen to, to pick your brain about, about all that. Um, and I guess to, to kick us off, I wanted to ask you about, a bit about your origin story, 
um, if you can give us a bit of an overview for the people that may not know you yet, and and how was it that uh, that you were sort of attracted or pulled into the the world of data? Ah, that's an interesting topic, actually. Uh, a uh, colleague, uh, David Hardoon, who's uh, heads AI for MAS, has asked me to contribute a book. So I've been actually going through the story, uh, my, my chapter. And uh, I started as a commercial pilot. And wow. similar work ethic, I was working 22 hours a day. Slept one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening. So I taught myself to use a new technology at the time called spreadsheets. And just uh -huh. simply to automate stuff. And and the uh, the impact was two things. It's... Uh, it accelerated, of course, the time I could get stuff done. So I got to sleep. That was outcome number one. But the second thing was because I could get things done so quickly, I could quote three days before anyone else in the industry. So business boomed. You know, so I'd run the company, uh, aviation company during the day and I'd fly at night. And that was you know, my first insight into what technology does. And it was a lesson that stayed with me as I moved and ran the product groups at Dell and at Compaq and then into banking and insurance and then back to banking and all that sort of stuff. But what technology does is it arbitrages time. So you get to live in someone else's future. And I find that the most powerful proposition there is on the planet. And what data science, as we'll get to, enables you to do is to do that at scale. And, and that's a, a wonderful thing. Man, I can't believe um, the, I, the, the results the results in your career show the the amount of drive and work ethic and the essentially the, the time that you've that you've um, been consistently working uh, this hard. It's it's amazing to to hear that it started, um, you know, way back and uh, using spreadsheets to to automate the business. Uh, that was that was fantastic. And and as a result of that um, of that hard work for that business, what what happened as a result and where where did you go from there? Wow. Um, I think, it, well, firstly, my career moved from flying into uh, technology. I think that was really the first thing. So, so that uh, what began as basically an exercise in laziness, uh, the ability to sleep more, actually turned into, into something more of a career. And, uh, and then, you know, so I, I developed spreadsheets into logic engines, which were embedded behind the scenes in software uh, to enable automation of time and attendance and, and all those sorts of things. Then I developed forward-looking pricing models at Dell that started to, again, play with the time horizon now. Um, so I could stop. The rest of my competitors were pricing for today. I was looking at demand, supply, manufacturing capacity, all those sorts of things. And then, you know, developing uh, ways of looking at pricing in a different way. And, uh, and business boomed. So for the first half of my life, every time I started to get into the automation thing and things, uh, business boomed. Uh, as I get older, the, the thing that I've really learned is that you can't just jump to those solutions. You can yeah. jump to the results, but you can't jump to those solutions because the human's ability to scale and arbitrage time doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. People have a learning curve and that learning curve, you can't, no matter you know, what you take them through, you, you you can't short circuit that learning curve. You can't just jump to the results. So when you apply deep learning models or anything, you can't just say, here are the results, you know, let, let's run at it. People want to know how it works. And my analogy is, you know, it took people a long time before they trusted the light switch. Yep. Now we don't know how, you know, we don't need to know how it works. We just go, okay, well, that's good to go. Um, but humans, you know, until you reach that point of utility, 
they want to know exactly how you got there, what the, all the things. And that learning curve started for me in the 90s. So yeah. you essentially have to take them through and accelerate them through a learning curve of oh, yeah, 30 years. That just really dates me. But that uh, you have to take people through that thinking. And if they don't understand it, they'll never get it. And, and that's been the challenge in the latter half of my career. Oh, you know, definitely. The, I was, I was, I was not. I completely agree. And I think that's one of the one of the main problems in analytics and data science is is uh, the adoption of the work, um, the, the the last mile, being able to have the impact that the, the, the technology promises. Um, what are what are some of the, the key things that you do during the the, the rollout period or, or pre rollout to get people interested, comfortable, bought in, and to and to adopt the change. Uh, I think the core thing I look for is curious people, because if you don't have that curiosity, you know, the, the irony I've found in most big corporations, they want the result, but they lack the curiosity to get there. And yes. unless you have that curiosity, you're not going to get there, you know? So you try and take them through the thinking. It's like, Oh, just give me the answer. And then you give them the answer and go, it's too risky. And why yeah. is it too risky? Uh, because they have a learning asymmetry, you know, so my, my sum up phrase for it is humans can't scale, yeah. you know, whereas everything in technology scales, you know, the three drivers of AI for me, uh, actually, I'll, a quick test, put you on the spot. I know you're meant to be interviewing, but uh, what are the three cause of, core laws of technology that drive uh, data science and, and AI? Um, so in terms of the, the, the impact that it can have, so um, I would say the, um, the data, the amount of computing power, um, and, and probably the, the lower barriers to get into in, in front of people. So either in people's hands or, or into people's okay. uh, workflow. All right. So that, that's, that's pretty close, actually. But what that is, is for me, three core tech laws. Moore's law, which says processing power doubles every 18 months for the same cost. So you're getting this huge drive in productivity and decision-making, right? Every transistor is a decision point. And so you're, you're having a logical output from those, those decision points. Whereas humans, we, we can't really scale in that way, regrettably. Uh, then the second thing is data science only really works where there's learning. If you run data science on a fixed data pool, right, then ultimately you end up with a very simple algorithm but it's not, a, uh, not an AI algorithm, it's just a logic algorithm. <laughs> so, so you have to have a certain amount of velocity in learning. And that velocity in learning is Metcalfe's law, the law of networks. It says that uh, the value of a network grows at the square of the participants. So the sensor market, as we know, is booming. The information coming in now is, is coming in at levels that it's impossible for a human to understand. And then the last one is, is Kreider's law, the law of storage. Uh, storage doubles every, 18, oh, sorry, every 13 months for the same cost. And that basically says that that's your knowledge rep, you know, repository, right? So if you take those three laws, it's your ability to assimilate learning into knowledge. And the faster you do that, the bigger a competitive advantage you have over your competitors. You live in their future because you're able to see things that they won't see for an, a period of time. And that, for me, sums up everything in tech. Technology just arbitrages time. And until we truly understand that in the same way that uh, uh, John Boyd understood that for US military, he was the guy that created the OODA loop, that everything for him was about you know, physics and you know, getting inside someone's turning circle from a fighter perspective or being able to act before anyone else. 
And that, to me, is the heart of competitive advantage, and it's exactly what technology delivers. But the challenge is humans can't scale. <laughs> right. Technology scales, humans can't. That's right. No, that's, that's, that is amazing. I love the, the, the clarity of the, of the thinking. Um, and one, one of the things that stood out to me is for, for you to have, um, to have the, the business success that came uh, from automation uh, and, and to, I guess, the, the, the scale that, uh, that you were able to, to accomplish, it meant that you were automating the right things. So I, so oh. there, there is, there is, it shows a, a, a great understanding of the, of the problem, um, really good domain knowledge. Um, and I wanted to ask you a bit more about that. Essentially the, the input to the automation that helps shape the automation. So it's the right automation for it to scale up and, and be successful. Um, since you've done it in, in, uh, successfully in, in so many different domains, do you have any, or have you, have you seen any commonalities in terms of either um, the, the amount of domain knowledge or experience that you have in a sector before going onto the automation, or, or is it that um, now, having done it a few times, you can pick up the, the knowledge as you're automating um, and, and still being able to hit the, the right mark? That's an interesting question. And for me, the first thing is that businesses are just silos and inside businesses, you have more silos and more expertise that sits within very narrow bands because we can't scale, but technologies are horizontal. And so, you know, the deep learning algorithm you have sitting over in one, one uh, industry only needs to be tweaked, not recreated to run in another industry, you know? So the, the principles tend to flow but the application is very specific, uh, which also leads to an interesting dynamic in that AI doesn't scale very well because it tailors to a data set, <laughs> which is kind of ironic, right? So you don't tend to build market assets that you can easily transfer because it becomes highly specialized in, in its particular field, uh, just like human beings. So we've kind of designed technology to reflect ourselves, but at scale. Um, but what I see is the fundamental principles of, of business uh, are constant across all types of business. What tends to vary, if you look at the difference between a bank and insurance company, they're both mathematical, they don't produce physical goods, you know, they're, they're basically equations that are just invested in humanity and assets. <laughs> um, but the time horizons are different. So, and with those time horizons comes different, you know, different considerations, you know. And what I love about tech is that, you know, Time is money, but time is risk. And these are the fundamental drivers of everything in business, right? And so the longer the horizon, the bigger the risk. So your consideration and, and your diligence has to, have to you know, plan in a different way you know, from a human perspective. Right. But the interesting thing is technology you know, and insight and collecting data comes to mind. Information is a direct substitute from risk. If I know everything you're going to do, what's my risk? <laughs> right? Yes. You'll have random events and things, but you know, largely a huge part of your risk is covered. Mm. And so you can't go into a new industry without going back and finding its leverage point. You've got to work out if I make a change at this point, where does it have the biggest impact? Mm. Now the challenge with that is that usually assimilates a few different areas within the business. So, and yet you usually have decision makers that sit in one. 
<laughs> so the challenge when you're doing these projects is that ultimately someone with a narrow domain of expertise is going to be making a decision across a wide range of expertise that potentially they're not actually qualified or have the insight to make an informed decision about. That's and right. There lies the challenge. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, that is so, so interesting. And how, how do you go about finding the, the leverage points when you move into a new area or new industry? Um, what are some of, I guess, some of your approaches? Do you, do you um, interview, speak to people? Do you, um, uh, how do you approach sort of your own research? Um, what, what type of uh, approaches, tools, techniques, what, um, what, what do you do? Well, I'm a business model person, so I yep. try to understand how the business model works, how value creation, the roles people play, you know, and also the underlying mathematics of it. And then I try to assimilate that and come up with a thesis, as we all do whenever we play with data, as to, as to where that, that leverage point would be. So you might have a problem in sales, you know, uh, in insurance, as an example, which was a new industry for me that I, I uh, wandered into. Uh, but the problem with that might not be anything to do with the salespeople or the distribution channels or anything. It may, you know, for me, I actually ended up finding that the leverage point was underwriting. Mm. You know, you had uh, data collection of 609 data points, you know, from consumers, right? Of which we discovered through machine learning only 73 were material and probably 90% of them you could actually extract from other sources. So you place this huge information gathering barrier to doing business. That made no sense to me whatsoever. So I always look for a market illogic. And if you find that illogic, generally the, the world opens up, uh, except for in this case in insurance, which is still thinking about it. <laughs> but I'll give you another example in, a, in an easier case. So, you know, I, when I was working for Compaq, hmm. I had a problem. We, we you know, lost, a, it was the Asian crisis at the time. We tend to thrive in crises. Uh, because you can, if you arbitrage time in a crisis, you win, right? So it's yeah. a fantastic time to go do stuff. Um, but we had this issue. We'd move fast in all markets, and but we had one market in Asia Pacific that was a disaster. I ran the product group. And, and so we looked at India, and India were unprofitable, uh, losing money, and I had a very understanding boss that said, get on a plane, get over there, fix or close it. And, uh, and you knew close wasn't an option, right? <laughs> we kind of narrowed down the, the scope, you know, so I went through everything from understanding logistics, manufacturing, shipping, you know, the whole, all the cycle, everything, time, impact on price, depreciation, Indian tax, which was a nightmare to get through and started modeling, right? And then I discovered something quite interesting that, that our biggest issue was arbitraging time. And, and the second issue I discovered was we were just simply looking at the wrong competitors. And to cut a long story short, that modeling came back. Unfortunately, I had a boss that understood the big picture versus the narrow view. We played around a little, redesigned product, relaunched in India. And we were told it's impossible. You can't compete in the Indian market as a foreign company. You know, Wipro, all these guys, they're going to they're kill you. Within one quarter of, of releasing new product that was designed around new business model, new logistics, et cetera, we went to number one in the market and massively profitable at half the price that we, we were a quarter before. What? That's amazing. Right? 
Because the simple logic was this. How can you not be cost competitive when you have the greatest purchasing power in the world? Compaq was number one by a massive margin. That's the simpler logic. So what was wrong? And that led me through that journey of trying to find where the leverage point was. And that leverage point ended up being one thing, which is pretty commonsensical at the end of the day, time. We had to work out how to arbitrage time. Mm. And when we arbitrage time, guess what? We were the most cost competitive uh, competitor in the industry. Amazing, amazing. But also a lesson of of humanity, right? That same model, when you went to try and explain it to someone that worked in a silo in another division, Mm. they just couldn't get it. (laughs) And And you couldn't move forward. And I saw the same thing replicate in insurance when we developed AIs in underwriting. We would get back a response from a chief risk officer going, it's too risky. And my response is, well, you know, you're a chief risk officer. Your job is to define risk with a number. Give me a number. (laughs) And the only response you could get back was, it's too risky, which is human, right? It's an emotional response. And so whenever I look at innovation, I always say, you know, it's, it's a mixture of art and science. Art, you can appreciate. That's the emotional side. But science, you can measure. And the reality is you have to have both. You know, so my bad was not really focusing on the, the human side of that equation, uh, which is the emotional side. You know, obviously, they were worried about losing jobs. If you can automate 90 plus percent of what they do, instead of looking at it as some institutions do as a growth opportunity, you don't let people go. You redeploy them against things that will grow the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, others look at it and go, well, I'm going to lose my job and, you know, let's not have any of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, don't, don't kill the job. Um, no, but that, that different mindset is, is um, yeah, definitely hurting a, a lot of, a lot of organizations today. The, the, the clarity of thought around finding the, the issues in, in the Indian market for, for compact as, as, as you mentioned, um, that, that, that part of, I guess, applying, applying science, and and art and seeing from the science perspective find trying to find that that lack of um that issue in logic and you know applying generalist skills learning along the way i'm sure across the getting sort of under the covers of the company across the board in order to find the the problem um having a signal that that um that shows you that there is a problem and that things can be better that is um Amazing work, obviously. Like, needless to say, like amazing results. But the 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 work is is incredible, and I that's something that that I see, um, and I guess so so easily see that you have such a strong entrepreneurial um, driver, or it's 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 so, such a, a part of your personality. Where where would you say that entrepreneurial drive? Um, comes from that entrepreneurial mindset, uh, entrepreneurial approach to problems that isn't isn't um, isn't always present in in senior executives. Sometimes people uh, tend to go more and more into their specialty area, kind of like a, you know, like a chief risk officer that you that you were mentioning. Sometimes people you know stay stay in their kind of like in their lane, while other people look to become generalists. And then out of the people that become generalists that can generalist problem solvers, then they add the, the, the commercial nature and, and become more entrepreneurial. Where, where did that drive uh, start and where does it come from for you? 
Um, probably as a young man, desperation to make money, pretty simple. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Had to eat, right? So, yep. so you know, you've, you've, for me, I actually, I, I'm quite curious. I have a highly logical mind. Um, so I look for that logic. That's yep. my strength. The weakness is the other side of the equation. There are people that, that are fantastic at politics, right? And that's their strength and how they get to places. And that's not saying it in a negative way. That is their skill. And that's the human side of the equation, right? I'll answer something and say, logically, it's, it's this. And then someone will say it ever so beautifully in a different way. And, and then you, you'll get a result. So I think, you know, for me, it starts with desperation of, of, of getting stuff done, but also that inquisitiveness and curiosity. I was always paranoid as a kid or as a young, young, uh, young guy starting out that I didn't know stuff. I would get into a conversation where I'd just look like an idiot. And I was just so afraid of those conversations, right? I remember yeah. when I went to, to Dell, you know, I'd build all these great models in, in the previous company. We, the business boom, same thing. We, we started simple data analysis, just, you know, analyzing activity of sales. The moment, the first day I charted that, where basically work was over by 11 a.m. That was peak productivity. And then the rest of the afternoon was like, the very next week, all that behavior changed because people were aware of it and aware that we were measuring, right? Yeah. You know, and, and, and that business boomed and, and a bank bought it. I went to Dell and I sat there one night looking at all these, you know, pricing was, was spread across four different non-connected spreadsheets and, and it was just a complete disparate disaster, right? And it was just, it was an impossible process. And I, I sat there literally one night just going, oh my God, I've oversold myself, <laughs> right? I, I, I really... I, I was just tearing my hair out. And then I just did what I, I, I just got read every you know, book I could on product marketing, margin pricing, you know, everything I'd buy the top five books on Amazon and, you know, I, all this sort of thing. And then I started integrating all that knowledge back into my models. Right. And, and then when I, I ended up just combining all of that. So I had, you know, cost forecasting coming in with high degree of accuracy. I could have configurators in my spreadsheets, you know, all this sort of thing, looking at demand and supply and working out when the price drops were and, you know, which led to, to Dell's lovely thing that they delay your shipping for a couple of weeks to take advantage of price drop that you've already paid for, <laughs> you know? So when you, when you look at that, that's what got me across the line in some of those areas. Equally, the failures are because I haven't been able to get across the line like with that risk officer, all right, or to get people that, that can, you know, understand that mix of technology. So let me, let me share one simple, yeah. and, and I think it's a, an interesting story. As a commercial pilot, when you fly at night and you have no reference, you know, it can be completely dark, there's just no reference outside. The only thing you can do is trust your instruments to stay in the air. Right. So you become very comfortable with working man and machine. Mm. Fast forward, you know, 20 years, I'm on stage with four people talking about AI, singularity, universities, you know, AI person, uh, a bunch of luminaries, right? Far more successful than me. So I, I was the weak link. So there were four of us, two guys, two females. And one thing, all of us were pilots. Ha. Huh. Interesting, right? Yeah. Probability of that you know, has to be ridiculously impossible, right? But there it was. People that could trust machinery, right, to augment their own decision-making. And I think that's the heart of data science. If, you know, if you can use it as an augmentation, as an acceleration, 
that's what it's good for. But unfortunately, as a displacement for human beings, we're not there. Yeah. And maybe we don't want to be there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, that is, that is so interesting. Um, and I also, I also love, love the, the fact that, um, that you push yourself to get out of your comfort zone to you, that you, you know, overextend and that you um, back yourself to figure it out. And how, and obviously <clears throat> that doesn't, that doesn't uh, prove successful a hundred percent of the time. It doesn't, it doesn't work like sure. that for anyone. Um, but how, how important do you think that trait has been in your career? The, the, the fact that something might be, yeah, out of your comfort zone, sort of like that little bit outside, you extend yourself in order to, to see if you can do it essentially. And, um, how, how important do you think that that trait has been in, in your career? I, I, personally, I think it's the most important thing and I can point you to the exact moment it happened. Yep. So I was working with a CFO I knew nothing about finance and he was a crusty old guy. So I actually nicknamed him Krusty. And I was working on a spreadsheet. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> right? I was working on a spreadsheet and I got to this, I'm like, I asked him a question, how do you go do this? And his response to me was cruel, but the most instructive thing, the advice that I've ever had. He said, it's logical, it's all there, work it out. Yeah. Right? And, and that guy ended up working for me at Compaq. <laughs> <Right? laughs> and became one of my uh, uh, best friends. So, but it was the best piece of work advice ever because it's true. It's logical, work it out. Right. So that side kind of places you well to be able to work in the technology field and everything, because everything we do is driven by some level of logic, you know, and if, and if it's logical, it can be done. That's the other mm -hmm. attitude I take. Right. If you, you know, you just need to think through the problem and the logic and then you can, you can get to an answer. I love it. I love that. I love that mindset. Um, one of my, one of my favorite overheard conversations, uh, which, which happened in the office today, uh, this week, um, I had two colleagues that were, were doing um, uh, a machine learning um, training and we're, we're getting people to, to go through a machine learning textbook with us. Uh, people we said that right. are interested in the organization and we meet once a fortnight and review one, one chapter of fortnight. And I overheard two, two people in the kitchen who were going through the program going, you know, I thought you had to be a genius to get into machine learning, but you know what? It's not that hard. It's quite logical. And the other person was like, yeah, I feel the same. And I was like, <laughs> I, guess I, was, I, was walking, I was walking away, but I was like, that is, just warms my heart that when you can open up the, the black box and, and say like, yeah, if, if you have, with, uh, if you face it with logic, you can get through it and, and it's all, it's all there. Oh, I love that perspective, man. That is, that is awesome. And it's so um, true. I, I was lucky in, uh, in my last company, uh, to have an advisor, uh, Jeremy Howard. Jeremy was a co-founder of Kaggle, you know, runs the biggest deep learning community in the world now, fast.ai. And, you, you know, I was sitting there and, you know, sitting there having coffee with him and, uh, you know, one of the things that he talked about was the importance of coding and all this sort of thing. And I said, that's the one weakness in my life, right? I never learned to code. Yeah. I said, I, you know, spreadsheets was as good as a, as good as I could go. And he said, well, then you're a coder. He said, because many of the, the data science problems he solves, you know, he gives to his classes and then, then he just does a spreadsheet 
while the classes are trying to do it in the most sophisticated way, you know, and, and it's true. If you actually understand what certain tool sets are capable of, mm. they augment you to be able to achieve pretty remarkable things, even though they might look fairly mundane to the average person. Right. So, and that was, uh, that was also a, a really valuable insight for me to start thinking less about my own limitation and more how I work around it again, which was yeah. kind of the original advice I got from Krusty. <laughs> Don't accept your own limitation. Find find a way, right? Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's that's why I was asking you about the the domain knowledge and the understanding of the business before the automation, because the fact that you're able to put that into a spreadsheet as a sort of first step of the automation that obviously then went into software, but but putting into a spreadsheet in in the in the first instance to get to get to get gains. Um, that, that shows, yeah, that you understand the problem well enough, uh, like really well, and that you can codify it by using sort of technology tools in order to, to get leverage. And that's, that's essentially the, yeah, I agree, the same, the same process as, as coding. So you're definitely there. And how, how was it or how has it been uh, working with, with Jeremy Howard? Um, my interaction with him was pretty limited, so I, I want to overstate it. But, um, you know, just to have the, he was sitting on my advisory board. So just to have that level of insight was was a, a phenomenal experience. Amazing. You know, and I had a, I had a really I had a good data science team and a, and a fabulous engineering team. Um, and, to you know, well, I think the, the key to everything is to learn from each other. Right. Because, you know, the moment, you know, I look for uh, it's the same thing I look for entrepreneurs uh, when investing. You know, I, I'm an LP in a fund and I have my own portfolio and things. I look for humility and grit. And they're the two big values I think are most important in any entrepreneur. Because if you're not humble, you can't learn. Yes. And if you're not persistent, you'll never get there. Right. So, you know, and the same thing happens in almost every sphere of business right? Because it's never linear. <laughs> you know, We have this binary and this linear view of life and it's just not true. Life is full of extremes and deviation and you know, all this sort of thing. So you, you've got to have that ability to recognize your own limitations mm -hmm. and to have the humility to learn, right? So you know, if you've got a 20 year old kid that's hyper smart um, and uh, Eddie Lay, if he sees this, uh, I'm thinking of you, uh, he's not 20, but he's 34. He's yeah. a young kid in Mirai, <laughs> but hyper, hyper smart people, you know, of course I can learn from them. Learning isn't bi-directional, you know, or, or unidirectional from age or a CEO that knows everything. In fact, the best CEOs know that they don't, yeah. right? But they're able to augment and look for the right talent. And technology is exactly the same. You've got to look and how do you augment and learn from each other. And, you know, for me, the number one thing in all innovation and all technology is learning, you know, Metcalf's law. <laughs> yeah. more you can drag in and assimilate it, you know, the more you can deposit back in your, in your knowledge base. Uh, man, I love that. I love that. And, and I, I know that for myself in the past, like I've definitely have, um, have chosen not to hire people, for example, because they, they are not humble enough in their, in their learning that they, they seem like they would be, you know, difficult to, to manage and, and definitely not, not an asset to the team because they would um, have major blind spots and tell everyone that they're wrong and, um, and not, not be able to deal with people effectively. And I think that that, that humility is, is critical. Um, and the persistence, yeah, definitely. Um, things take much longer to, to accomplish, especially the, the types, of, types of things that, you're, that you've been doing. Um, so I can, I can see the, the tremendous value in that. 
Um, so with this, I wanted to, to change tact a little bit, and I wanted to ask you about the, the type of things that are occupying your mind at the moment, uh, your mind, your time, what type of things are you, are you uh, working on, obviously things that you can share. Um, sure. But you, you have um, su uh, su such sort of uh, a varied um, both, both interests, uh, accomplishments, and, and you're involved in, in so many varied organizations at the moment. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you, well, yeah, what's occupying your mind, your time, how do you structure it, uh, what type of things you're thinking about at the moment? Sure. Okay. So it would probably be helpful to frame uh, my, my work uh, at the moment. So I'm uh, a chief digital officer at Riyadh Bank in Saudi. Um, I moved over here with, uh, with COVID and working out of Tokyo. So effectively, that's my night job. Uh, now, but that's that's where a significant amount of my focus and effort goes on. How do you transform a bank that, in a market that's that's certainly not up with the you know what's happening with a lot of Asia, right? So okay. it's it's kind of going back in time and then trying to work out how to arbitrage that time to get them you know into uh, into a position where where they have highly scalable digital models and and that's that's a, a challenging role, let's say. Um, I also run a company here in Japan uh, called Finmarai, and Finmarai is working in partnership with NTT Data, uh, which is connected to a thousand institutions, and pretty much uh, it's an identical uh, identical challenge. The Japanese market, uh, from a digital standpoint, is not uh, highly evolved, let's just say that. <laughs> um, and so how do you transform that market and look at new models and, and start, you know, the, I think the whole model of financial services is dramatically changing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you, I think the biggest mistake that many people make is they'll look at digitization versus being digital. And digitization says that you take something that's old and you just make it digital and that solves your problem. And equally, I see a lot of the fintechs are just being the digital version of an old product where if you're actually arbitraging time and changing risk and you know, actually the whole thing changes, you should be looking in a, in a very different way. So, so I look at how do you frame that future view and how do you create that vision and then look for the pieces to assemble underneath that give you that capability. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most interesting things in financial services now is the fundamental models changing. You know, if you think of the old model of the bank, I used to go out and buy technology, bring it in under into my you know prem, premises, brand it and present it to a customer, and that was my interaction. With open banking, that is decentralizing, and as it decentralizes and moves out and resides in the market, so it doesn't have to sit inside now; it can sit outside. And then you know now with open banking, you can scale those market assets and now plug into any bank that's compelled by law to provide that data. You know, so in many ways, what's happening in the telco industry in the in the early 2000s, where telcos were coming dumb pipes, now in financial services, you'll see banks and then soon insurance companies that will become the same unless they understand that their business models are actually changing. And that they don't need to create just direct, you know, look at their little pond of, of data, but how do they look at market data? How do they really go beyond, you know, expand that whole learning quotient and expand and, and compete out in the market versus just compete from a base? And that's, uh, that's a very, it requires a different approach. And if I look at digital, everything in digital works off the same thing. You have a fixed asset. The cost of that asset can be reduced through reuse microservices using, you know, making use of your data, which in many organizations sits as a cost, 
how do you turn that into a revenue? Then the second thing is you need to scale it. So now with open banking, you can scale across horizontally across the market versus playing in a very narrow field within, you know, trying to directly acquire everyone. And then the, the third vector is, you know, how do you, you continually scale your product offering to put over that network? So now the challenge becomes how do you embed in networks versus how do you scale directly? And then how do you scale your product portfolio to drive marginal uh, returns, right? Um, and that, that challenge and that, you know, and the nature of technology, given that we can do real time, you know, we move from a reconciled business to a real time business and then to a predictive business. Mm-hmm. When you have those compressions in time, that changes the fundamental nature of products. You know, if I do a transaction at retail, am I bound by it, you know, from a, or can I reclassify that and turn that into a different transaction later? Why do I have to spend from a credit or a debit card? Why can't I spend from my investment account in the same way and build intelligent, you know? So the, the whole nature of that relationship is going to change. And if what I'm seeing is financial services is replicating the telcos of the 2000s where they get relegated to just dumb pipes in the background and seed the ground to big tech. And remember in, in 2000s, big tech was little tech. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but they were the over the top players, as the telcos referred to them. And the same thing is happening in banking today. History repeats, right? What is old is new again. And yet the same mistakes you're watching being played out again in real time. So big tech, fintechs, fintechs could become big techs, you know, or big techs will just take that market because they understand how to scale technology. So, for instance, there's a, a bank, which I'll keep anonymous, not one I work for, yep. but that built three different core banking systems yeah. to attack those three models, which means you've got three times the fixed asset, you haven't worked out the marginal base, you, you, you know, so you're never going to get to the cost competitiveness of a big tech. So if you look at uh, Tencent, uh, when they created uh, uh, WeChat, they had QQ, 700 million customers. They had 100% of China. And yet, rather than trying to work out how to expand off a fixed base, what they do, so they had network depth, but then they created WeChat, which now looked at how do you create ways of making lots of portfolio and then scaling it out. So now they create a portfolio depth, network depth, and now they play in the top quadrant of value, right? From a digital perspective. Too few financial institutions even conceive those models. And then they wonder how are we going to compete? And you don't compete by just <laughs> you know, building three different fixed assets, right? Yep. It's not going to work. And you don't compete by being you know, relegated to, to be, being a, a dumb pipe. Uh, you have to be in, in, in the direct customer interaction with what customers want because everything else is, is as you said, becoming a, a commodity that is, that is um, um, essentially backed by the government so it, and, and yeah, commoditized. So everything's looking the same. <clears throat> but I, I see it as a, as a real difficulty for, for, uh, for banks to be able to play in that, in that space. Um, and, and definitely there's a huge sort of fragmentation happening as a result of the fintechs attacking little, little parts of the segment. Um, obviously, that's sort of excluding the, the likes of, of WeChat. Um, but in, in general, um, yeah, I see, I see fintechs being very narrowly focused, which obviously they need in order to, to survive. Yeah, yeah what, what do you think? What do you think, tell me? 
No, I, I actually, I have slides on these sorts of things. So I think that's one of the big changes, right? So if you yep. have a look, banks are wide, portfolio yep. depth, yep. right? But fintechs are deep. So they go much deeper into the customer value chain. Yes. And, and that creates and liberates new types of value. So now if you take it back to the, your earlier point on the telcos, when the OTT players came in, the telco, the valuation of the telcos didn't change for the next 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Or probably, you know, only until recently have they started to uptick again. Yep. The OTT players basically took all the value out of the market. Yes. So all of the growth quotient went to those guys. And the same will play out, you know, the fintechs, yeah, they're only playing in the narrow slash today because they're, they're going much deeper into the value chain, but they know how to do that. Whereas these guys just know how to facilitate. Yes. Right. Like the telcos. Yeah. Yep. We just facilitate transactions. But the value comes in optimization, and that's really where I think the future lies for both insurance and, and for banking. You've got to work out how to optimize value for the consumer and therefore as a derivative, optimize value for yourself. Yes. Very interesting. Um, uh, so I will um, I'll ask you about your, your thoughts on that, on how to optimize or, or, or some, of the, some of the ways that you're optimizing value for, for consumers in, in banking and insurance. But, but before that, a quick sort of tangent is um, in, in, the, uh, in the countries that you are working in, uh, we said understanding that it's multiple geographies, is open banking coming in uh, or what, what is being shown as part of open banking? Is it just the, the transactions from accounts and um, and credit cards for for retail customers. Uh, does it does it involve liabilities? Does it involve payment of liabilities? Um, how how uh, obviously if if um, if you know off the top of your head, but how how deep is the the data uh, being shared or proposed to be shared as part of open banking? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. So the first thing is that you know I'm always a believer the consumer should own their own data. And, and I think it's a very strange model, right? That you could be so a platinum frequent flyer on one and you turn up to another, another airline and you're just treated appallingly, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, because they don't realize your potential because they're not privy to your own data, right? And they're not even thinking about how to acquire you and your, and your data. Mm. Um, so I think that actual model of, of data ownership will, will change quite significantly in time and, and actually draw away from the banks. There is very strong, as you know, uh, regulatory protection around data uh, in financial services and, and for all the right reasons. Uh, and particularly so in insurance where, where there's always a fear by regulation that, that, that you, information that you share will be used asymmetrically against you. Yep. Um, and so I, I think that what will happen is that you know, and, and the joy of data science is that that data will move closer to the customer and the customer's control. Mm -hmm. And yet you're still able to get that data scale through permissioning, et cetera, to, to help the customer create value. But you have to have this shift from looking at, I'm just going to use the data to create value for me versus how do you actually create game theory? How do you create a win for the customer and a win for you? Yep. And, and that mathematics is bereft in financial services today. Yeah. You know, and yet, and it is game theory. So if you create the win-win, both parties would be better off. You know, so today financial services is a win-lose game. And I think that that's got to change because if you just do the simple math um, and shake some of that convention, you see enormous amounts of value liberated. And I'll, I'll give an example. Um, you're, uh, you're an employee, right? So when you start work, 
uh, in Europe, I think it's probably a month to get paid, right? So if you look at that from a financial transaction and the time perspective, your balance sheet is funding your employer for a month. Yeah. And the cost of you funding is very high. So for the average person that carries debt, mm. you know, and if you look at you know, poor and inclusion, they're bearing the highest cost of funding for the lowest return. Yeah. Now, in a real-time gross settlement world, that makes no sense. And, and where, where that began was actually 5,500 years ago in ancient Babylonia. Mm -hmm. So the original word for interest in ancient Babylonia was mash. And the ancient Greek word is tokos. Both of them refer to calves. So this was lunar cycle cattle trading. And religious authorities said, don't charge interest. So it got bundled in price. And, and we've had these cycles ever since. Wow. That makes no sense in the digital world. So yep. we need to really rethink the mathematics of value. Because if you were to optimize my debt cost and your employment cost, you could have a lower employment cost and I would have a lower debt cost and we'd both be better off. Um, and there are projects um, that are out there that are actually looking at reshaping those mathematics because they're mathematically astute. Like, you know, these yeah. are mathematically in, um, have high mathematic integrity because they're, it's just looking at the actual value, but not in a silo, but across value chains. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's largely the future of both insurance and, and banking is when you start to really understand the time element of those transactions. Very interesting. Um, so tell, tell us a bit more about your, um, your initiatives and, and projects on those two sides. Obviously, what, what you can share, um, but on, on financial services, on insurance, uh, I know that you're doing some very interesting uh, innovations to, to try and uh, to, to optimize across the whole uh, value chain and, and take into consideration those, those knockoff costs or knockoff effects. What are, what are the type of, um, of, of projects or initiatives that, that you could share? Um, one is I'm really focused very heavily on how do you get to real-time transaction systems yeah. all the way through, from core systems all the way through. Uh, so real-time, you can substitute you know, information for risk and, and all those sorts of things. So that's kind of one bucket of, uh, of, of things. Sure, the other right. one is the timing and the flow of capital, not only between consumers, but also down to corporates. And, you know, how do you build game theory models that, that, uh, that enable people like real-time payroll and things like that? Uh, there's been a few press releases on something by the British government on stuff that I've been involved with uh, in, in the UK. Uh, looking at how you optimize capital, both, uh, in fact, from, the, from a government perspective, from a bank perspective, uh, and also from a consumer perspective. Um, so that's fascinating, I, I think. Uh, and that's something working on in, in the UK, here in Japan, and, and in a few other geographies. Um, and then, you know, uh, then I, the other area I'm very interested in is fractionalization. Uh, because for me, you know, fractionalization drives inclusion, and often people think it's new, but in fact, it's incredibly old. So in 1602, the first company was fractionalized into shares. But our limit was the share because that's all we could manage with paper and measurement and all. Today, you can fractionalize anything, any asset. So, and if you have a look at, um, at the returns of investment, return, average return since 1873 in the US up to 2018 was 6.8% uh, for the S&P. If you look at savings, savings by definition are usually capital destructive, right? So, which means they're negative. 
So net of inflation, both figures net of inflation. So what that means is that savings keep the poor poor. Right? And yet you have a look from all of the, the current thinking around that is that you should save, right? And you should. You need a buffer for a rainy day, uh, that I don't dispute. But you're actually impeding your ability to get a return. Yep. And so, so I'm looking at how you change that equation because when you change time and you move to real-time systems, why can't you have more sitting and spending out of your investment account? Why can't you start playing with time and interaction? You know, for me, banking actually simplifies way down. Why do I have to surrender a life insurance policy? Why do I have to surrender all of it when I might only need a part of it? Mm. You know, so, so that, that thinking and that capability of now using data at scale and information at scale and transaction systems at scale in real time leads you to vastly different product structures. So, you know, I'm working on how do you create that next-gen infrastructure uh, from a banking and a market perspective because the, the same mathematics work in international, uh, in international trade, et cetera. And, you know, and then how do you do it at an institutional level uh, and at a company level and an individual level? So, so it's, uh, it's for me, um, another guy who influenced my thinking was a guy called Jeff Jonas. Uh, he was the guy that cracked the MIT card counting case through big data and data science, right? So, and he always says it's like puzzle pieces. You have to find the puzzle corners. And then the interesting thing about puzzles is the more pieces you fill in, the easier it gets. So your work effort starts to decline. And that's true. That's how, exactly how data science works, right? You're, once you get to a certain amount of scale and, and have a vision, then the rest becomes much easier. So, so that flow actually is, you know, preoccupying me to think through the complexity, to get to the puzzle piece corners, to get to the, the ability to execute at scale. Amazing. Amazing. And how, how do you apply this, these perspectives in, on your investment side? Um, that's an interesting question. So, well, I try to get, the investing companies that I'm into thinking about these things mm -hmm. um, and to really look at, at where their role is in, in that view and, and how they play. And I, I must say that I've been very lucky. Uh, so of my private portfolio, I had six. One I exited, uh, one, one failed. Um, uh, sorry, seven. Uh, one exited, one failed, and the other five have all raised capital during the crisis, which is interesting, right? <laughs> so, and, and many of them won't need another capital round. So it's, it's right. a, uh, you know, that, that philosophy, I, I always look for, as I said, I look for entrepreneurs with humility and grit, and I've been very lucky to work with a bunch of entrepreneurs that, um, that have those attributes. Yeah, and then besides the, Besides the humility and the grit, and and I guess having some some traction in the business, or, or do do you look for traction? What what other type of um, oh all, all these companies I went in and into in seed round, yeah. So you know I look for the entrepreneur and I look for a vision and I look for a, a capability to actually execute it. And mm -hmm. I've been lucky in working with a bunch of guys that uh, really fit that mold. And and the the vision of these companies, how aligned is it to to your perspectives and, and, and your vision having, um, having had, uh, I 
guess, or, or, or uh, your wealth of experience definitely puts you in a position where you can see much more broadly, much, much more deeply. Um, do you, do you tend to align with, with entrepreneurs that, that see uh, the world in a, in similar views or, or different views? No, I learn from them. Actually, the, the thinking is usually quite different to my own. What I look to bring to it is network effects. Yep. You know, how do I connect them with certain, you know, either institutions or parties or, you know, all that sort of thing. So back to Metcastle. Everything for me always triangulates back to that, you know, that and physics. Well, we pay too little attention to physics. I agree. I agree. And um, la, oh, this has been absolute last, I guess, needless to say. And I have one last question for you. In it's with with everything that you've done uh, so far, which is incredible. Um, what what are you most proud of that you've done in your career? I, actually, I'm not the only thing that I'm proud of, uh, and I'm not a prideful person, so I want to put that in, in perspective, but where I get my biggest buzz is from the people that I've worked on, when worked with, who have gone on to much bigger things, yeah. you know, so uh, I had a, an assistant that uh, is working for Stanchart Ventures now, <laughs> like, a, like literally she was my admin assistant. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had uh, another person that worked for me that at one point was one of the top uh, 15 most influential women in fintech. I've wow. had uh, another um, another guy that was uh, an individual contributor, uh, ex-actuary, who now runs a big chunk of uh, architecture for Alliance in blockchain. Wow. You, you know, so to see these guys succeed, that's, that's magic for me. And from each of them, I've learned an enormous amount as well, right? Um, just incredible what people are capable of if you just give them the latitude to go and produce. So, you know, I'm never, never a fan of top-down management at all, right? If you empower people, they'll take you, you know, empower them, get them on the learning curve, get them really interested, you know, uh, and people are just capable of remarkable things. So for me, that's, that's the number one thing. I love it. That is fantastic. And it's an amazing note to end on. Steve, I want to thank you so much for, for your time, for sharing your journey, your perspectives. I, I'm so impressed with your, with your critical thinking, with the world, the way that you see the world. Um, definitely, it's something that, that we need more of. Thank you for doing all the, the good work that you do and for, for sharing everything. And do tell me, what is the, or if you guys have a name for the book that you're writing with David. We had David on the show previously as well. Um, if it doesn't have a book, uh, if it doesn't have a name yet, uh, let me know when it does have a name and we'll promote yeah, it. I think uh, he's titled it Failing to Succeed. Love it. Right, oh. because we all learn from failure. The best source of learning is experiential, right? So it's, uh, it's, I, I think it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant title and I hope I've got it right, David. <laughs> well, 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 <laughs> and so I, I owe him my chapter. I, I committed I'd get a draft this week. I'm way behind. <laughs> You'll, you'll, have it, you'll have it done by the time this, this airs. Um, Steve, thank you so much. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, and thanks again for, for sharing your, your journey, your perspective. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Hey, no worries. Thanks for the opportunity and, uh, and very nice to chat. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast 
to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.